What's up, Sober family? Welcome to I Kiss Alcohol Goodbye, the podcast for newly sober people learning to love ourselves instead of booze. I grew up in a very religious background. So people used to be like, oh, you have to be this little perfect angel. You got to be this perfect little angel. I was like, screw that. You ain't got to have no halo. All you got to do is just do better today than you did yesterday. So if I can give you any type of words of wisdom, it's compare yesterday to today and figure out what area in your life you need to do better in and attack that. Today, my guest is Nico Morales from New Mexico, and he is going to motivate you with an inspiring story of how he fell into addiction, but how he climbed his way back out and is now living strong after six years since having his last drink. I'm your host, Dana Kroll. I'm the former army chaplain who struggled with alcohol after I left the military. After a roller coaster of ups and downs, I finally found my way out of the cycle by connecting with people like you. After kissing alcohol goodbye, my goal is to never go back, but I can't do it alone. So let's break up with booze together. With me in the studio, as always, is Al K. Holfrey, my spirit animal for sobriety, and Spruce, my PTSD service dog. And we are ready to get rocking here with Nico. So, yeah, man, tell me about your journey, starting from wherever you want to start from with substance abuse and, you know, how you dealt with that and, and how you've overcome it and ever since. For sure. Sounds good. Let's get rocking. Yeah, man. Uh, my name is Nico Morales from Albuquerque, New Mexico, the Duke City. Um, if you haven't been here, please don't come. I don't want you here. That's my personal opinion. Uh, we get enough transplants thinking that they could come run the town. Uh, I'm semi-joking, semi-not-joking. Uh, that's that's just the it. way that it goes. We have a different culture down here. Uh, the city that I'm from is older than the United States. I know that might blow some people's minds, but yes, there was places here before the United States was here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, a very diverse background, but New Mexico is high in the poverty rate, low in the education rate. Um, I'm blessed enough to come from a two parent household um, to have uh, what do they call that? Higher education. I got myself a bachelor's degree, graduated high school. I was a high school wrestler. I had a full ride wrestling scholarship, which uh, allowed me to kind of fly under the radar with certain other aspects of life. One of those aspects of life was my substance use. I started using substances when I was 14 years old, um, and I continued using them all the way until I was 27 years old. Um, I've done everything underneath the sun from smoking tobacco, cannabis, all the way to injecting heroin, uh, all the way to smoking crack out of a crack pipe. Uh, all of that stuff I've done, um, including the legal substance of alcohol, which uh, some people always forget is a substance itself. Um, so that's just a quick overview. What really took me down that path was some adverse childhood experiences. Uh, when I did my own self-work, my own shadow work, my own self-reflection, I call it personal development. I'm not really much of a uh, recovery drum beater myself. Uh, I think that everybody has a substance, a vice that they use and that they probably overuse, um, whether that's the credit card, whether that's some sort of food, uh, whether that's the soda that they have to have every day, everybody has one. Um, acknowledging it is the first step. The second step is kind of moving on next to what do you want to do with it, right? Uh, but when I did my self-work, uh, I identified that one of my root issues was that I had a fear of missing out of experiences. I had a fear of not being accepted. I had a fear, a fear of being rejected. I also had a fear of take, being taken advantage of. And that stems from some of the adversities that I faced as a child. Uh, 
we all have them. So it's not too special. Um, but mine was very much feeling isolated within a family dynamic um, and feeling like the outsider of a, of a family. Um, that's what mine kind of revolves around. And so the way that I would manage that, the way that I would handle that would be by using substances. The first time that I realized that substances was a uh, false solution was about 14 years old and I was getting a ride home from school and the guy that was giving me a ride home, he passed me a blunt. If you don't know what a blunt is, uh, good for you. Secondly, it is a uh, cigar filled with cannabis. And at the time it was swag. Uh, if you don't know what swag is, again, good for you. But there's different grades of cannabis. This is the lowest grade of them. Uh, passed me the blunt and I took a hit, inhaled as much as I could before I started coughing and crying. And um, I realized this is how other people probably feel. This is how other people probably think. Because my brain at that point in time just seemed to be firing on all cylinders mm -hmm. when previously it didn't seem like it was firing on all cylinders. And um, I was immediately drawn to substances because I was like, well, if I could just put chemicals into my brain, into my mind to make me feel better, then might as well do that. And so I continued using substances uh, from 14 to 17 and it escalated pretty quickly. I've always had this uh, entrepreneurial spirit. And that's kind of what I do now. So I match resources, uh, the resources that I have to individuals who need them. Uh, but when I was younger, I used to sell loose cigarettes. I used to sell uh, single blunts. I used to sell uh, small amounts of different narcotics. And that's how I'd make my money. Uh, and it, I did that during the school year because during school, I wasn't allowed to work. During the summer, I was allowed to work. But during the school year, I wasn't. Uh, so that's how I made my cash during the school year. I'd save lunch money and then I'd kind of flip the three bucks into 10, turn the 10 bucks into 30, 30 bucks and to so on. Um, and I got good at it. I found out that networking and being around people was one of my skill sets, talking to people and uh, convincing them that what I had was a solution for them was one of the strengths that I had. And because it was a strength, I just directed it in the incorrect way. Um, when I was about 17 years old, that's when life really kind of put a couple to my chin and I didn't take it so well. Uh, the only reason why I stayed in school, cause I never liked school was, uh, because I could wrestle. It was like beating up on somebody without getting in trouble. Um, for me, it was being able to hurt people physically the way that I felt hurt inside. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why I enjoyed wrestling. And, uh, 17 years old, I had a full ride scholarship that I threw away because me and the new head wrestling coach that my school had gotten, uh, we got into um, an ego trip is what it was. Uh, I was the, I want to say all-star athlete because there was a couple guys that were way better than me, but I was the best marketed athlete. Um, and so when he came into the program, he uh, wanted to make sure that everybody knew he was top dog. So he called me out and I didn't like it. We got into an mm -hmm. argument. And uh, I said, say, said later, I'm out of here. I already got a scholarship. I don't need you. Like you didn't do Jack for me. Um, and to this day, um, I still have some animosity towards that man. Personally, he's reached out because he knew that he messed up and he sent me an apology note through uh, Facebook. I thought that was kind of lame personally. I mean, wasn't the best way to do it, but I guess it was the, it was his path of saying, I'm sorry. Cause he knew he had to kind of uh, push the, the limits too far. 
Um, but that's when I gave up on any type of uh, scholastic, any type of academic, any type of uh, mom and dad's dream, if that makes any sense. Uh, for most people, what I've learned is that we're trying to um, make other people proud instead of making ourselves proud. And if you want to make yourself proud, then you got to do what your heart says. So uh, I started selling more drugs, started uh, living on my own at 17 years old. And like most 17 year old young men, thinking I had all the solutions to the world and nobody was going to tell me any different. Um, but the only solution I didn't have was the one that was going on in between my ears. There was something in there that didn't seem to work right unless there was some sort of substance. Um, because my brain is so active, um, it, it moves so quickly from one thing to the next thing. It was nice to have things slow it down. Um, I knew not to touch drugs. If you've ever heard Biggie Small songs, the 10 Crack Commandments, the fourth Crack Commandment is never get high on your own supply. Well, I had uh, broken that rule when Oxycontin entered the game. Mm. And so for me, Oxycontin was the uh, one that grabbed me by the boo-boo, uh, mainly because you didn't have to go through the normal drug dealers. You could kind of get it from various avenues. And with uh, Oxycontin, it was a pill. And I grew up in the pill generation where there was pills for everything. So pills weren't bad. Pills were promoted as good. Um, and I figured, well, if I just take the pill, then it'd be fine. And then it went on to snorting the pill. Then it went on to smoking the pill. And then the pills got disconnected. So um, I was given an opportunity to uh, try black tar heroin. I remember that night pretty vividly. I was laying in bed and uh, my left hand was tingling because of the withdrawals. So it was the beginning of the withdrawals that I was feeling. And I just couldn't stand it. Uh, it hurt at the same time as ached. Um and my body hurt and it ached. And one of my buddies, I uh, I hit him up and I'm like, bro, I don't, I don't feel good. I don't know what's going on. He's like, well, come by the house and I got something that might make you feel better because he knew the extent that I was using. Uh, just to make that pretty clear, on average, I was taking about four Oxy 80s every day. Uh, so yeah, that's when I got introduced to black tar heroin, smoked that. And then, uh, this girl that I was seeing a few months later, she said, you know, you're wasting it that way, right? Like if you inject it, you get more out of the product. So I started injecting, uh, heroin, but it's about the time that I was 20 until 22. Um, I was IV injecting, uh, heroin until I found myself, uh, real alone and isolated, uh, more than I had ever felt in my life. And I had seen enough people pass from using the same substances that I was using that I figured, what the heck am I still around for? So let me start searching for that reason. If there's a reason that I'm here on this planet, there's a reason that I get another 24 hours, then I better figure out why so I can get it over with. Um, mainly that was my thought process. Um, so at 22, I made a commitment to stop using uh, opiates, opioids, heroin. Uh, and I was about 120 pounds then. Uh, running around, not doing the best things. Uh, functioning addict is what they called me just because I always kept the job, but didn't do the best at my job. Uh, I was able to maintain one for basically my charm and my charisma, but that's how I got away with a lot of things that I shouldn't have got away with. Uh, by the time I kicked heroin, I uh, was then reinstated into some of my social networks, some of my familial networks. There are uh, happy that Nico wasn't using drugs. And that was the one rule. Hey, Nico, don't use drugs. And I'm like, cool. 
But hey, if you want a beer, we'll give you a beer. If you want a shot, we'll give you a shot. And so I started drinking. Um, and one shot every weekend turned into two bottles every night um, because the same mental patterns were there in my head. I had it figured out how to relay a new thought process. Uh, by the time I'm like 26 years old, I'm drinking two bottles a day, uh, same situation, being socially isolated. Uh, not having family around because they were tired of Nico acting a fool, all drunk. And I realized that there was something wrong with me, not something wrong with the rest of the world. And I say wrong in the most polite way because I wasn't functioning in the best mindset. And so for me, mindset is everything. Uh, like I said earlier, I don't really beat that recovery drum. Uh, you're not going to catch me saying, hi, my name is Nico. And fill in the blank. Uh, I'm not knocking those programs. I'm not knocking any other program. Uh, there's many paths to achieve your definition of sobriety, but for me, they just didn't work. Uh, I had already been told enough things in my life that to admit that I was powerless was a little bit difficult. I knew I had the power to make choices to get me into the situation, so I knew I had the same power to make choices to get me out of the situation. Um, and for me, decision-making is a huge pivot that you can make whenever you're on uh, any type of substance use journey. Um, so at 27, I found myself living in a building that really only had electricity. There was no gas. There was no plumbing. It was my grandma's old house. She had passed away. And my mom basically said, uh, you can go stay at your grandma's house since she had inherited it. And she said, as long as it doesn't uh, turn into your coffin. Well, that didn't last for too long because I kept on abusing the uh, opportunities that I had. And eventually on my 27th birthday, uh, I was paranoid out of my mind, drunk uh, off my ass, and uh, I scared my family. And for me, I don't mind scaring other people, but like scaring my mom and my sister, that was kind of over the edge for me. And uh, that day, um, I started realizing, dang, you go, you messed up again. You had another shot and you messed it up. Well, since you have another shot and you got up and you got another 24, let's see what we can do. And that's when I really started uh, figuring out what was wrong with my thinking. Not what was wrong with me anymore, but what was wrong with my thoughts? What was wrong going on in my head that made me so dependent on a substance, me so dependent on uh, anything that would basically help me escape the world that I was living in. And I realized that the world that I was living in was horrible. So that's why I needed to escape it. So again, some more self-work, some more personal development. I get introduced to this guy online. He comes across uh, screaming, thank God it's Monday. His name's E.T., the hip hop preacher. And uh, he starts relating to me in some ways through his messages that no one else had. Um, he was making sense. He's talking about, you know, you have the choice to do right or do wrong. Which one are you going to do? You have the capabilities if you have you know, a sound mind and all your limbs to change the way that your life is. And you could change it for the better, but you got to make that choice. So I started just applying some of his techniques to some of his tools on a daily basis. Uh, Mondays, I'd listen to him that whole rest of the week. I'd apply the principle. Monday come around, I'd listen to him again, apply the principle. And what do you know? My life started changing. Started changing for uh, the benefit. And uh, I decided to go back to school because that was one of my limiting beliefs was that uh, I was done with school and that I 
couldn't ever achieve a higher education. Uh, I'm not a big fan of higher education personally, but I got it for free. Um, so I figured might as well take advantage of it. Like I said, here in New Mexico, it's a high poverty, low education. So if you can get a higher education, then you could counterbalance that poverty situation. And so that's how I uh, approached it. I got a degree in a bachelor's degree in business administration with a specialty in project management. Um, and I got that for free through a customer care job that I was working. Uh, I started to learn more about my superpower, which is talking, communicating thoughts, communicating ideas, communicating these grand concepts uh, into very simple forms. And people around me started to notice it. Uh, they noticed the change in my life. They noticed that I didn't stink anymore. They noticed that I was actually had some color in my face. They noticed that I was really joyful, not just drunk joyful. And people started asking me, well, what happened? What changed? And uh, one of the big factors for me that changed was I started focusing on my spiritual life a lot more than I started focusing on my physical life. Um, for me, I believe that every human being is three parts, a spirit, a mind, and a body. And uh, when I started letting my spirit, the conscious mind, tell me what was right and what was wrong, and I started letting my logical mind uh, follow the spirit mind and the flesh, the body had to figure it out. Um, and it would either fall in line or it'd get broken. And uh, eventually I started to break my body so that in a positive way, so that it would follow my mind and my mind would follow my spirit. And by doing that, I got introduced to my own, you know, higher power, my own savior, his name's Jesus. And matching that with personal development um, made perfect sense. So I found myself uh, achieving far more than I had ever seen. Eventually I leave that job um, as a full-time customer care representative. And I started off on my own venture of providing different trainings to individuals. At first I started helping people uh, get to their definition of sober, but then I realized, you know, I'm not the I'm not the person that can get that for them, right? Uh, that's a choice that they need to make. So I just started producing videos and topics. And one of the most common things that I noticed people weren't talking about was the decision before the decision. Like that thought thinking about stage where you're just like, huh, I maybe want to get sober, but I don't know what's going to happen. So I wrote a book on it, mainly because I'm selfish and I started getting tired of answering the same question over and over again. So I just wrote a book and anytime someone answered it to me, I just give it them. The, here's the book. Here's the five things I think you need to know before you get sober. And that's the title that I made for the book to make it very simple and very clear. And since then, I've been able to translate that into a full blown business where I offer personal development for individuals who have achieved their definition of sober and look for ways to maintain it. Um, individuals who are in that. So uh, I call it the sober lull. Basically, after they stop drinking, stop using. They're just like, well, life is boring. Why would I even want to live this way? Um, it's because they haven't figured out what they can contribute to others yet. And so I help them identify that and then capitalize on it. Uh, we live in a beautiful country, America, where you can really capitalize on information. And what I do is I help individuals find that information and turn it into a monetizing way. Um, I also train trainers that are working within behavioral health uh, segments, uh, industries. Uh, I got contracts with the state of New Mexico, uh, human services department, where I train some of their people, uh, the different counties. I work with them, 
Today I was at a school because I have a contract with the school helping young adults who have been asked to leave all other public schools uh, to find their strengths, you know, find their capabilities and translate that into the workforce. Um, so really I just turned everything that I went through into a positive and that's my ultimate goal, at least to share with your platform. Or Dana, like to let you know that whatever you're going through right now, whatever you're at, wherever stage you're at, things didn't happen to you. They happened for you. Right? Things happen for you to change the way that you think. And if you could change the way that you think, then you could change the way that you feel. And if you could change the way that you feel, you could change the way that you act because your actions all stem from your feelings and your feelings all stem from your thoughts. So if you can figure out what's going on inside your brain, why you think the way that you think, it's called mindfulness. You can sit outside of yourself for a little bit, then you're good to go. You can really change the way that you live. But yeah, man, that's a, a recap of Nico's 33 years here on this planet. Awesome. I got a little bit more, but uh, we'll save that for later. Okay. Okay. No, that's, man, that's fantastic. Um, I'm just interested to hear alcohol kind of came at the end, which I found interesting. It wasn't like the gateway to other things. So I'm just curious to hear about more about what you think about alcohol being the legal substance and, and how it's promoted and how much that affected you. Um, alcohol was like my exit ticket, um, mainly because if this thing that's legal, this thing that is promoted, this thing that uh, doesn't have any stigmas to it, it actually is counter stigma because if you don't drink, you look at it as like a weirdo when the reality is like, People who do drink, I think, are weird. Um, that's my personal opinion. I don't want to knock you. I'm sorry if you do, but it's weird to me uh, on this side of it. Yeah. But the reason why I chose it was because it was the last kind of thing that I could grab onto. It, like for me, substances were way better. I'd rather smoke some weed and chill, chill out. That's my personal preference. But at the time, cannabis wasn't legal where I'm from. So, you know, you couldn't you couldn't do that. Uh, opiates they were even better because they slowed down my brain into a place where I was slower functioning but my brain didn't hurt as much mm. and so for me when alcohol entered the mix it was just kind of like the last option and because it was the last option I took advantage of it instead of uh, saying no creating my own personal standard I fell to the standards that the world has created our society has created and so that's how I view alcohol was like um, when I started, I'm, on, I'm an extreme individual. I got extreme tendencies. When I do things, I do them to the fullest. So in my head, if uh, cannabis helped, then pills will help more. If pills help, then of course these drugs are going to help more. So uh, I'm thinking like visually in my head, I started at the top of the staircase. Alcohol is at the very bottom of the staircase. And then there's the door out. That's how the transition went because I, I why not is my head. If one substance is going to make me feel awesome, then 10 substances is going to make me feel amazing. And when all of those other 10 substances got pushed away, the only one that was welcomed, the only one that was not stigmatized, the only one that nobody had a problem with was alcohol. So it was kind of just a default, like, why not? Yeah. Um, and I like to share with people, just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's good for you. Yeah. Like, it, you have to create your own standard of living. And that's what I learned in my journey uh, was that I was falling to the standards of those people around me, not to my own personal standard. And because the people around me had no problem with drinking, they weren't 
wired the way that I was wired, they could have a drink and finish half of it and be like, Oh, I'm done. Like I couldn't do that. Like that, that, yeah. that was weird to me. Yeah. Why me too. Drink the whole thing? <laughs> right. Like, why aren't you going to order another round? Yeah. Like, and why don't we have a bottle in the car so we could go drink there? Right. That's why alcohol was kind of like the exit ticket for me um, was because it was the most socially acceptable thing. Okay. And you talked a lot about um, hurt, you know, something being wrong with you or this idea that you were um, hurt, that you were hurting inside, that there were things going on inside your head um, and, and starting with uh, wrestling being a way to hurt, to hurt other people as a way to sort of distract yourself from uh, the hurt that was going on inside. Can you, can you kind of walk us through, um, you know, as you uh, uh, listen to E.T., the hip hop preacher and uh, other, you know, other folks, like how did you get to the point where you reverse that narrative? How did you do that? That's a great question. And the way I tend to explain it seems like it's so simple, but I want to preface, put an asterisk on it. that the, What you're hearing right now is after years and years of working uh, on yeah. it, changing my self-talk, changing the vocabulary that I use uh, audibly, changing the vocabulary that I have inside of my mind, and then also changing my perspective. But where that really started was I'd listen to other people's stories who were worse than mine. And okay. when I heard other people's stories who were worse than mine, um, it kind of made me feel bad about the way that I was approaching my own situation. So I hear at uh, a podcast, I hear on a story on the news, I hear some story, they always seem to pop up of someone who didn't have a support system, someone who didn't have all their limbs, someone who didn't have a sound mind, someone who uh, had everything lost from them, someone who had a family and ran their family into the dirt. Like I would, I would hear those type of stories and I'd be like, dude, your, your situation isn't that bad. There's always someone who has it worse. I don't know if you ever heard that phrase that there's always someone bigger, better, and better. There's always someone who has a worse situation than you. And to think that your situation is so poor that you can't ever get out of it or to think that you're the only one that's facing these type of situations, that's selfish. That's not grateful. That's uh, being really, really conceited. And when I looked at it from that lens, instead of being a victim of my circumstances, I was appreciative of my circumstances. I was like, you know what? Even though I had some crappy things happen to me, it could have been worse. It could have been worse that uh, my family, I had both parents in my household growing up, right? It could have been worse that I had these crappy things happen and I didn't have both parents. Mm -hmm. um, could be even a situation that I don't have any parents. And it could be a situation where I don't even have any type of family, right? It could be a situation where you could just keep on going down the line. Um, and then I would think about those individuals and I'd come up with a character in my head who had it worse than me. And I think about how they would want to be in my position and what they would think about from my position. Mm. And when I started playing that kind of movie in my head of that person wanting to live Nico's life, then I started wanting to live my own life. And I started wanting to make my life better and better and better so that someone else could look at my life and be like, yeah, I want Nico's life. So that it just wasn't somebody who was in a dire situation, but so that it was someone average Joe, let's call it that. Someone who does their 
business, never done any type of substances. I wanted that type of person to be envious of the way that I live. And thinking about what would make that individual envious of what I, how I lived, how could I show love to them and show them a path out? And even now that's, that's what motivates me is to live a life that can be admired by not just by myself, but by other people, um, especially for my community. Um, show them that, you know, we got, we got something better out here and we are resilient and to show them that resilience in a healthy way. Like I never saw it myself. I never saw a man not use a substance that wasn't, that was somebody that I could look up to. Mm-hmm. Right. Most of them, I was just like, nah, you're lame, bro. Like I ain't trying to be like you. So at this point in my life, I'm like, no, I want to be that individual who they ask, well, what kind of beer do you drink? I don't drink beer. Like, I want, I wanted to be that individual that, well, what's your vice? What's my vice? My vice is at working out. My vice is helping people. I'm addicted to making sure that other people have a better opportunity. Other people have a better example. So I'm addicted to, what are you addicted to? And then they say, oh, uh, smoke weed. Like, yeah. good for you, yeah. bro. Yeah. So that was one of the pivotal perspective changes. I love that, man. That's that's awesome. Addicted to addicted to helping people and addicted to and and the working out, which is something that I used to be addicted to because I had to be because I was in the army. And since I left the army, it's kind of like gone down, gone down. And I, man, I you know I find that times when I exercise, you know, um, that it helps so much because I have I have the racing brain and the. You know, a lot of the things that you've described, um, all or nothing type personality. And uh, so, you know, a lot of what you said has resonated with me. But what are some of the things that have helped you? You mentioned mindfulness. You mentioned, you know, the working out. Are there other things that you do to help control the narrative in your head? You know, if and when I'm curious, you know, what are the things that kind of come back at you? Do you have things like cravings? Do you have things like negative self-talk that creeps back in. If you do, you know, what are some ways that you deal with those things to stay on the, stay on the path that you've created for yourself? Oh, absolutely, man. Right now I'm working through another one because the mindset that we have, it really never changes. So you got to make sure that you hook onto the right lane. Uh, The way that I like to describe it is that in my brain, I have paths that just work, right? And those paths are automatic. They just kind of run. Now, where they automatically go on their different tracks, just like train tracks, how you can see them shift one side to another. Mine is the same way. And then in that shift, I can go back and forth whenever I choose to. Now, right now I'm currently dealing with another addiction and it's called ice cream. Ben and Jerry's came out with uh, this new one and it's not a plug for Ben and Jerry's because they make some good ice cream, but I, I found myself eating it every night to emotionally cope with certain things that I still got going on in my head. Mm. And when I'm finished with the pint of ice cream, my brain will be like, yeah, see, you might as well just go drink because you're still hooked on something, Nico. Then the next thought will be like, yeah, you haven't done anything. You haven't grown anywhere. Look, you're just replacing one thing for another. That's the kind of self-talk that I still got to deal with. For me, what I usually do is I change my physical state. That's where the working out comes in mind. Um, I'll, I'll do some jumping jacks. I'll do some squats. I'll do something that takes my mind immediately from what I'm doing to the next thing. And then I have affirmations that I say to myself. I remind myself that I'm a clean cut, calculated son to the most high. I remind myself that I am created to create. I remind myself that good things are supposed to happen to me. I remind myself that I'm supposed to be successful in everything that I do. 
And I tell myself that. And sometimes it's just sitting there quietly with my eyes closed and repeating it inside my brain. Sometimes I have to be in my own face. So I'll get inside of the mirror and I'll say that to myself and I'll look at myself. And for me, I know it sounds counterintuitive. I'm telling myself, Nico, you're a little punk if you think that ice cream is going to beat you. Nico, mm-hmm. you're a punk for thinking that these type of things are going to send you back. You're a punk, bro. And you should really be ashamed of that type of thought process. And by shaming my shame, I'm able to kind of empower myself. Um, so that's one of the ways that I do it. And it's not for everybody. The path that I chose isn't for everyone. Um, the way that I function, the way that I think is not for everybody. Uh, but that's what's so beautiful about this whole journey is that there's different paths. There's different opportunities for everybody to take. So by changing my physical state, changing my mental state, um, the next thing that I think about is my emotional state. So I name a few things that I'm grateful for. Uh, in my journey, I avoided jail. I avoided rehab. I avoided some of the other consequences that come with uh, the choices that I made. And uh, what I did not avoid was the physical pain. Um, so when I was 27, uh, I was diagnosed with what's called avascular necrosis and both of my hip bones collapsed. So from age 28, I was diagnosed when I was 27. And I just put it off until I was 28. That's when I noticed I couldn't walk. I was fumbling around like a penguin. Um, and I had this kind of self, still a little bit of self-hatred. It was self-punishment. I was like, this is what you get. So this is how you're going to walk around. And so for a few years, um, I would just walk around like a penguin. I couldn't lift my knees, like to sit down and use the restroom. Uh, that was painful to get in and out of the bathroom. Like if you have to step over a tub, could barely do that. Like I was scared to fall every time I took a shower. Um, I say that because now mm, I have my hips replaced about two years ago. And I think about the times where I couldn't move. I think about the times that it hurt to sit down and stand up. And so literally I'll sit in a seat and I'll stand up and I'll remind myself, you're grateful for being able to move. You're grateful that you don't have pain. I'm grateful that I can pay for a place to live. I'm grateful that I can have a vehicle that works. I'm grateful that I can take these deep breaths without having anxious thoughts. I'm grateful that all my joints work. And from that grateful mentality is how my mindset would shift. Um, I'm grateful for the ramen noodle pack that I have in the cabinet. I'm, you know, I make up these small little things that I'm grateful for because, again, there's somebody out there who would be super successful from the position that I'm in, and I can't let that person down. So those are a couple different ways that I change my own self-talk, change my own uh, emotional state, and change my physical state because we're intertwined. When you are ingesting any type of substance, Uh, drinking anything that is altering your chemical brain if you're doing it on purpose then in my head you're trying to escape and what are you trying to escape from can you face that giant can you face that mirror can you face yourself and having the courage to do that brings me joy and that for me is a a reflection of self-love and if I can stay in love joy and courage then there's nothing that I can't beat it's awesome, man. It's uh, powerful. And something you had talked about, you had said there was a decision before the decision. Can you tell me more about that? Because I found that really intriguing. Absolutely. Uh, so I don't, I do my best not to speak from any type of theory. Um, my, what I speak about is either from my lived experience or it's scientifically proven. And I say that because there's five stages to change. 
And this is any change that you make in your life. The first one is pre-contemplation where you don't even think that you need to make a change, right? Cool. Contemplation is where you think that you need to, might need to address something. Then you have preparation where you start preparing to make that change in your life. You start thinking about what it can be like. And then you take action. That action is, you know, removing or adding some sort of activity to your life. And then there's the stage of maintenance. Well, a lot of people, they don't talk about pre-contemplation because they're like, well, those people don't care. They don't even know they have a problem. Cool. I accept that one. The decision before the decision is the contemplation stage. Before you even prepare or take any type of action, you're thinking about it. You're thinking about the outcomes. And that's the decision before the decision. Right? Before you make a decision to change, you're thinking about making that decision to change. You're thinking about the possible outcomes. You're thinking about all the what ifs. You're thinking about all the scenarios that might stop you or might help you in making that decision. And for me, when the decision to make the decision is heavy enough, then you actually do it. Um, and that's when you take the preparation step. And that preparation step is, well, for me at least, uh, I told you at the beginning I was drinking two bottles a day. The way I started to prepare my change was, I'm only going to drink a bottle and a half, right? Mm -hmm. Some people call it harm reduction. Some people call it titrating. Uh, there's different terms for it. But for me, that was the decision before the decision because the actual action that I needed to take was completely remove alcohol from my life. And the decision before the decision was that the small steps that I would take on a day-to-day -day basis. And making a decision happens instantaneously, it's a moment in time that you make that decision. And really what you're doing is you're cutting off all other options. So before you cut off all other options, you have to make some decisions if you're willing to, to do that. So that's the decision before the decision. That's awesome, man. Um, I have two more questions. The first is, so, you know, you're 33, I'm 43. Uh, maybe vision cast for me. What's the next decade look like? For you what when you're um when you starting to i don't know if you'll have some gray in your beard uh by the time you're 43 but in case you do <laughs> when you when you're sitting in in this seat you know um 10 years from now what are some things that you would like to look back and and say about the the, the decade that has just passed uh one of the first things that's a great question and thank you for that um well one of the first things i'm gonna be one of the best speakers in the nation you know just like et is ET, yeah top, yeah i'm gonna be the best speakers. yeah yeah, man. I want to learn from him. Um, so I learned the structure. I learned the game. So I'm going to be one of the best speakers in the nation. Uh, that's going to be one of the things that happens. Uh, I'm also going to have a family. I, right now, I don't have any kids. I don't know how I did it, but I don't have no kids. I don't have no wife. I don't have no baby mamas. I don't have no ex-wives. Um, so I'm preparing for that place of it. You know, I'm making the decisions now to prepare for that decision. Um, so those are the two big things. Um, the other think is I'm really focused on creating systems and structure for individuals to come out of whatever they're hooked on at their pace, at their time frame, however they choose to do it. Um, because there's a different definition of sobriety for everybody, man. And at the end of the day, the full-blown abstinence of no substances is difficult because sugar is a substance. Like I'll go buy a pack of Skittles and I'll eat that. And that's a substance, right? Yeah. So yeah. when people say, oh, I'm sober, I'm like, yeah, sure you are, right? In my head, I, I don't even consider myself completely sober because I like ice cream. Like that's, 
that's how I think about it. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to have a program on my own utilizing personal development that walks people through uh, their own journey without any type of stigmatization. Uh, I talk a lot of crap, but that's just because I, that's how I work, right? I need a little bit of that nature. Um, at the bottom underlying of it all, though, is because certain people need to hear crap talk in order to motivate them. Mm -hmm. Certain people don't do well with that. Come here, Hito. That, I call it the my Hito syndrome. <laughs> and it's come here, my little baby. Let me take care of you. Some people like they take advantage of that. And so I'm the dude like, no, get the heck out of here, dog. Like you want to run with the big dogs. Let's let's set a standard for the big dogs and let's go ahead and live to that standard. And now that I'm in an age where I have individuals looking at me like, holy cow. You don't drink, you don't smoke, like, no. You don't have any baby mamas? No, you don't have three girlfriends? No, like, I'm setting a standard for that. And for me to continue that standard and that standard of living that I think is very much missing right now um, is going to be one of the things that I look forward to over the next decade. Awesome. Last question that I have for you is, what, what else did you want to talk about that maybe you wanted to reiterate uh, just in closing? And in closing... Wherever you're at, if you're listening to this, you have an opportunity. Like, think about it that way. You got an opportunity to change the way that you live from this point on, if you want to. If you want to. And if you live in America, there's a level that you, level of opportunity that you don't even recognize you have. And if, if I'm speaking to a vet right now, right? There's other people that have, fought for you to keep that level of opportunity and for you to throw it back in their face by not taking full advantage of every opportunity that you have is completely wrong. And so that's where I would encourage you. I'm not going to knock you, but I would encourage you to look at what opportunities do you have? What resources do you have? What events have you been through in your life that you could share with someone else? Because one of the things that helps me out the most, Dana, is serving other people. That's why I love talking. Like if I can serve others, if I can help remove some pain from someone else's life, then I go into this state of mind where time doesn't even exist. Like I'm so focused on helping them out that it, it takes me away from all of my own issues, right? My own joint pains, my own desires for ice cream, my own self-loathing because I'm a single man in his thirties. Like, you know, that type of stuff still weighs in my head. But if I can think about, nah, dude, you're a single man in his 30s who can help out other men right now. Why not? Why, why would you do anything other than that? Uh, and for me, uh, I don't really conform to the non-traditional aspects of families, right? I believe that men are leaders. And I believe that men were the first leaders. And I believe that men should lead. And if we don't have anybody leading, then how can we go anywhere. And so I choose to keep my hand raised. And I encourage you, if you are a man listening to this, then keep your hand raised. And if you are a woman listening to this, you have a role within your community that is so special. Like if you're a female listening to this, you can encourage your man in a way that no other human being can because they care about you. And if you can find the avenue to encourage them, not diminish them, that's so helpful. Um, the last thing I'll say, Dana, is that uh, I grew up in a very religious background. 
So people used to be like, oh, you have to be this little perfect angel. You got to be this perfect little angel. I was like, screw that. You ain't got to have no halo. All you got to do is just do better today than you did yesterday. So if I can give you any type of words of wisdom, it's compare yesterday to today and figure out what area in your life you need to do better in and attack that. And maybe no halo is the, maybe that should be the title of the episode because uh, for those who are not watching this on YouTube and they're just listening, Nico's got a, a shirt that says no halo on it. So Nico, I want to thank you so much for taking time to grace us with your presence, with uh, your words of wisdom. Uh, it's, it's a powerful story and, and I'm confident that, you know, in addition to the last six years of what you've already been doing and are doing day to day right now and the amazing work that you're doing with kids and with others, uh, just man, keep it up. And uh, thanks for taking time to, to talk to us on this little show and, and the audience that we have here to encourage us to, you know, to not get bogged down, to, to be grateful for all the blessings that we have and to, uh, to keep pressing onward. Thanks, man. Well, thank you for allowing me the time and sharing your platform. Thanks so much for joining us on I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye. We look forward to seeing you next time. And until then, Al, Nico, and I send you all of our love and we say goodbye alcohol and hello life. Much love to you all and peace.